What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. Good Monday. Welcome to the Sean Spicer Show. What a great weekend it was, but we come back to a ton of drama in Washington, D.C. We ended the week with one candidate for speaker, and we're starting this week with nine candidates for Speaker of the House. If you didn't follow the drama on Friday, oh my gosh, I can't believe what happened in such a short amount of time. But we went from Jim Jordan going for a third try to Jim Jordan dropping out, nine candidates putting their name forward for what will be a meeting tonight in the House Republican Conference where they're gonna have a candidate forum again to try to unify around someone that can get nine votes. One of those candidates, Dan Muser of Pennsylvania, is going to join us here today to tell us why he thinks he's the best candidate moving forward. And literally, as this show wraps up, they will be going into the House Republican Conference for this candidate forum. We're going to get to hear his pitch before the members do. You'll get to decide if he's one of those candidates should advance forward. Uh, potential votes tomorrow. So this could go quick. Also, Mike Davis from the Article 3 Project, we're seeing a lot of issues, trying to keep Trump off the ballot, trying to indict Trump, trying to get Trump. Mike Davis with the Article 3 Project is going to be here today and lay out all of the issues that are facing Donald Trump from the 14th Amendment to these indictments, these four indictments. He's going to tell us what sticks, what doesn't, and why. He is someone that you're going to want to hear from and understand. So, plus, Virginia is on the ballot. All Virginians were racing towards. Why does that matter to the rest of the country? I'm going to tell you why. I've got a brand new op-ed out. I'm going to explain it all. So much to get to on this Monday. Let's get into it. All right. Welcome to the Sean Spicer Show. Happy Monday. So much to get into today. Let me just start with Virginia. I've got a brand new op-ed out in the Hill uh, the link is on there if you want. You can go see it on my Twitter page. I link to it. I've got it uh, in the links to the show all over the place. Or if you go to SeanSpicer.com, you can check it out. But let me surmise it for you right here. You may remember in Virginia in 2021, um, Terry McAuliffe, who had been governor of Virginia, we limit our governors to one term in Virginia, which is a whole other story that I can't get into now, but it's silly and we keep trying to change it. So Terry McAuliffe was going to run again. He had been governor. He sat out a term and then he was going to run again, which is totally permitted. He was running against a guy named Glenn Youngkin, who had been a private uh, equity investor, very successful. And everyone thought this was Terry McAuliffe's to run against. People were doom and gloom in Virginia. Uh, there was, we were going to get wiped out and everything was going to be horrible. Well, if you remember, Terry McAuliffe made this huge gaffe and he said, 
that parents really shouldn't be involved in their kids' education. Boom. Firestorm lights off. Republicans go on the ascent. Not only does Glenn Youngkin take this race for governor, but Winsome Sears becomes lieutenant governor and Jason Mayaris becomes attorney general. A full sweep in Virginia that we hadn't seen in decades, right? And the House of Delegates is in the Republicans' column. Glenn Youngkin is a little stymied because the House, I mean, the Senate chamber doesn't go. But here was the point. In 2021, Republicans were on the ascent. They took the Democrats' gaffe and drove a truck through it, talked about issues, both education, parents' rights, and economic issues, and made them into things that resonated with voters, things that people voted on, talked about where their kids could go to school, what the kids were learning, talked about economic issues that faced so many Virginia families and individuals and businesses, and put Democrats on defense because of their stupid gaffes and, frankly, their stupid policies. And it worked, right? So here's the question. Why aren't we using that playbook again in 2023? The House of Delegates, as I said, is barely controlled by Republicans. The state Senate, barely controlled by Democrats. If Glenn Youngkin, as governor, wants to get anything done, he needs to hold the House of Delegates and retake the state Senate. But if you live in Virginia, as I do, every ad, every ad, it's cookie cutter ad, and this is the nut of what I wrote in this op-ed. Every ad is all about MAGA extremists taking your right to, to have an abortion away. Literally, it doesn't matter what race and where you are in the Commonwealth of Virginia. That's what Democrats, they've poll tested it. They know what works. And what are Republicans doing? They're sitting around in the fetal position going, oh, I don't want to talk about this. And they're debating a 15-week ban versus a nine-week ban. What? Here's the deal. Democrats, just like in 2021 when Terry McAuliffe gave us a gift, have a huge gift. The former governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, was a doctor a doctor, and he went on radio, WTOP, in the D.C. area and talked about when the baby is born. Let me see if I can pull this up right now. He says, the infant would be delivered, would be delivered. Okay, therefore, it is a baby. The infant would be kept comfortable. This is a quote. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and father desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. That's not abortion. That's murder. That is murder. A baby has now been born. Resuscitate it, keep it alive, and then a discussion ensues? Why aren't Republicans on offense? I don't understand this. The quote is right there. We have the audio of it. Anyway, I make the case in this article that Republicans on these issues need to be on offense, not defense. We should be making every Democrat answer to this. What is your position? Do you support abortion up until, and even in the case of this, after the moment of conception, of, of birth? We shouldn't be on defense. We should be on offense. So anyway, I put that out there because some Republicans are taking this advice. Some aren't. But the reality is Republicans have got to stay, stop playing prevent defense and go on offense because it's the difference between winning and losing, not just Virginia, but I think that Virginia Democrats are showing a blueprint that Democrats will there, therefore run on going forward. So that's my first thing today. Second, we're going to talk to Dan Muser about this in a second. This speaker's race, nine candidates in, some great folks. Uh, it, is, it is a big list. You've got 
uh, Majority Whip, Tom Emmer of Minnesota, Vice Conference of the, Ch- of, of the House Conference, Mike Johnson, Kevin Hearn, who was just on the show, the chairman of the Republican Study Committee from Oklahoma, Byron Donalds, Austin Scott, Jack Bergman, Pete Sessions, Gary Palmer, and Dan Muser, all announcing they want to run for speaker. Dan Muser is about to join us. We need to know what he's going to put forward and what the rest of these guys are going to put forward. It is a big deal. All right, I'm pleased to introduce one of these candidates for speaker, Pennsylvania Congressman Dan Muser. He represents Pennsylvania's 9th Congressional District. He serves on the Education Committee, the Veterans Affairs Committee, the Business, the Budget Committee. But he also was an extremely successful businessman before coming to Congress. And I think we need a little common sense and a little business sense going forward. So without further ado, let's find out what he's running and why. Congressman Muser, thanks for joining us today. It's a, it's a busy day for you. I appreciate you making time. By all means, Sean. Great to be with you. So look, nine, uh, well, eight of your fellow colleagues are going to make a pitch this afternoon, this evening at the House conference meeting. Give us yours. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. Well, look, uh, Kevin McCarthy was an, was an excellent speaker. Um, he, I think he was very unfairly removed. Uh, he had a lot of talents uh, from speaking to organization to fundraising to, you know, understanding the priorities of the, of the conference, a conservative. So we got to do something to build off of that and go and, and likely go a step further. And the step further is uh, building trust, uh, creating a more of a team culture uh, and unifying our conference. I mean, we've got 222 members uh, and we need 217 of them on board, certainly to elect a speaker and as well to, to pass bills, uh, certainly conservative bills moving forward are Democrat colleagues don't exactly give us any help. So so what do you do for that? It's not just in words, because you're going to be hearing a lot of words from each each candidate, all of which I respect. And frankly, all of which I think could be a good a good speaker of the House moving forward. But you need a plan. Uh, I come from the business world, spent 25 years helping grow a business to a large business, uh, small business to a large business, served as revenue secretary where I was in charge. I had a lot of autonomy on a 2,000 member, 2,000 employee uh, organization. Um, so so um, it's no not new to me being in the decision-making position. However, one thing I do know is you avoid mistakes by talking to a lot of stakeholders, whether it's customers, employees, in this case, members. So it's going to be a very inclusionary speaker's office. Mem- it's going to be a member's first speaker's office. Uh, the members will be the show. Uh, and we will have a steering committee, which I'd like to call a roundtable that meets weekly. Uh, the members will be the first priority of this speaker's office uh, if if I'm in there uh, serving as speaker. I don't even want to say leading, frankly, because because we're all going to we're all going to lead it together. But come the end of the day, one person has to make certain decisions, of course. So it seems to me that there's this like there's this balance beam of that, uh, like 
you know, you had eight members that removed McCarthy and then they were on board with Jordan, but a bunch of the moderates and other people, you know, the appropriators weren't. How do you get that, that right mix to yeah. satisfy the eight people who didn't vote for, who wanted to remove McCarthy and then the 20 or so that weren't on board with Jordan? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's exactly what happened, right? I mean, there were eight, again, my friends, most of them, certainly they're all colleagues, and I respect each and every one of them. But I think McCarthy, again, very unfairly removed. I do think the reaction to that was for many not to accept Jim Jordan, no matter what. Uh, heck, we had some that just continued to vote for Kevin McCarthy. Meanwhile, McCarthy was, of course, uh, endorsing and supporting uh, moving on with Jordan. So, so I don't have a lot of legacy. You know, I have been here five years, almost five years now, but I, I don't think I've done anything that could create a, a, a offensiveness uh, with, with, within any members. We all know each other pretty well. I'm not saying they all like me, uh, but <laughs> but they they know me. And I think I come across as a pretty reasonable person that's, yeah. that's always a team player, uh, honestly. Um, I, you know, I fight behind closed doors, but but once we get out on the floor, I'm, I'm with my team. So, so if we create a real high level of inclusion, if we have all members, including that eight, that, that help author, that have ownership, that feel a responsibility for our priorities, our policies, our legislation, they have their fingerprints on it, they tend to support things and appreciate team play when they're involved in what the game plan is. And, and to me, that's actually the most important thing the next speaker can do. And it comes from mutual respect. It, from there, we build trust. And let's face it, Sean, something else is important here. We can't over-promise and under-deliver. Right. In the business world, you do it the other way around. You under-promise and over-deliver. You exceed expectations. Without having the White House or the Senate, we gotta, we got to keep um, expectations in check within our within our conference, but also with the American people. And that's why it's crucial. Frankly, we reelect Donald Trump and put him back in the White House and move this this catastrophe of the Biden White House out. So since you brought him up, let me ask you this. I, I think that President Trump is going to be a big player in this. Have you reached out to Trump or his team? What, if anything, have they said to you? Yes, I am in uh, somewhat regular touch with uh, President Trump as well as his team. Um, I am uh, helping lead his campaign in Pennsylvania. Uh, that's that's crucial. It's a, it's a significant commitment I've made, uh, and uh, and it's significant to the, the saving America to the future of our country. So um, and and he's uh, he's he's always he's always got great advice. You know that he's his his instincts, his reactions are have been very helpful. And we uh, he's you know he's he's saying hey you know crowded field. Uh, you're, you're, you're a great guy. Um, uh, good luck. Uh, not necessarily, you know, overly supportive, but certainly supportive. Uh, and, um, I, yeah, look, we'd, we'd have a great work, working relationship. Uh, but I don't see him necessarily weighing in at this point in time. Uh, but he may, cause, cause his opinion matters. He's the so leader you, of our party, I think. Right. And I, I do, I think it actually will matter. And I think obviously that's a good sign because at least the rumblings are that there are at least one or potentially two candidates that he doesn't want. So that, that bodes well for you. Yeah. Walk me through the strategy, if you will. Right. So 
as far as I can tell, there's a meeting tonight of the conference. Uh, nine candidates are going to give their pitch. You guys will vote. And then at least tentatively, there's going to be another vote tomorrow. The problem hasn't been getting a majority of the conference. Scalise had a majority of the conference. Jim yeah. Jordan had a majority of the conference. Heck, Kevin McCarthy had a majority of the conference. The issue has been getting to 217. So walk me through the strategy of, is this just an attrition thing tonight where it's like, hey, I'm going to try to make it to round two, to round three, to take to the majority. Uh, and then how do you get to 217? Yeah. I, I think it is an attrition thing, right? We'll, we'll, we'll have nine of us. We give our pitches. We do some Q&A. Tomorrow, uh, the voting begins. And who gets the least votes is, is out. That's, and then is that an agreement that you all have that the, whoever is the bottom rung falls off? Or is that what they should do? That is my understanding of it as communicated by uh, our conference chair, Elise Stefano. So what, what do you have, what do you think you're going into the first ballot with in terms of numbers and coalition? Obviously, you're a business guy. You're from Pennsylvania. What is the coalition of members that you're going into that first vote with? The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine, enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe, download now, The Truth. You know what, Sean? I don't know. I mean, this this really happened kind of quickly. Uh, my getting in uh, was was somewhat sudden, although I've been thinking about it now for well, only about five or six days. So, so I've certainly been 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 in touch with a lot of members. They like what I'm saying. They like they like the plan that I that I've that I've outlined, by the way, and put in writing. Uh, they know me to be a team player, uh, to be a conservative. Uh, to at the same time be a, be a problem-solving conservative, have a certain level of practicality. I don't make good the enemy of perfect. I'm far far more about outcomes than I am ideology, and so that's attractive to some, maybe may unattractive to others. Uh, so so you know that that's 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 my pitch coming in with a plan <clears throat> of trying to pass the most conservative uh, bills that can actually pass, appreciating that we're not going to change everything. We're not going to change. Uh, mandatory spending right now. Uh, we're we're going to need a president that would actually sign improvements. That doesn't mean cuts. You know, right away, people jump on, oh, you want to cut Social Security? No, people have paid into Social Security. People deserve it. Could it use some reforms? Yes. But but part of my plan is also to have a commission. No, not, it's not a completely original idea, but a real commission, bipartisan preferably, with deadlines of give us what the best plan is possible for the long-term debt issue. But this plan also has to be as much about economic pro-growth initiatives as it is about any, any potential reductions uh, and, and, and slowing of the uh, growth of spending. Um, but, but again, a steering committee uh, that meets once a week with the speaker, that, that it's, it's the speaker's roundtable, um, of, of approximately uh, uh, 20 members meets weekly. Um, other thing, a, a resource centers within the speaker's office that helps follow bills, gets answers. You know, like for instance, a $1.2 trillion uh, transportation bill passed. It's very difficult to find out. You have to call your, your, your state 
legislators to see where our federal money and the governor's office is being allocated. We should have a resource center so we know where that money's going and how we can access it. It's things like that. But more importantly, having people feel a responsibility that their hands are on the driving wheel along with others of, of where we, we are taking uh, this this conference. It seems to me from talking to a lot of your colleagues that one of the big issues has been spending and reform. In other words, not letting these bills pile up at the end of the fiscal year in September yeah. and then getting jammed on these omnibus and continuing resolutions. Have you, is this something that you have proactively addressed? And if so, how? Well, uh, Jody Atherington, I think has done a really nice job as, as uh, budget uh, chairman and I was on budget my, my first term being former revenue secretary. I, I weighed in on our state budget quite, quite a bit. Um, I want to be, I've asked several times now, and I hope I'm on. We are talking about a commission uh, that, that Jody would uh, likely head up. Um, and, I, and, I, and Kevin, when he was speaker, uh, felt that that was a, a good idea. So I do want to be on that. And look, we need, we need a plan. We need a 10-year you know, plan. It's it's a big problem. I mean, look at the level of uh, deficit spending just this year, and we're get, we're getting blamed for it. Meanwhile, it was all the the legacy. It was only a year ago, two years ago, spending of the Democrats of Joe Biden that's now now going out, and thereby our our deficit goes way up. You know, you posted on Twitter a unity pledge. Explain what that is, who, who, who came up with that, and what that, what that portends for going forward. Well, my understanding, that came from conference. That came from Elise uh, Stefanik and per perhaps Steve as well as majority leader. And it's a pledge stating that whomever uh, is running, of the nine of us that are running for speaker, that receives 50 plus one in the conference, you will agree to support me being a, a, a candidate and you will vote for on the floor. And I, I voted yes. Didn't take me long to think about that. I, I'm, I'm on board. And, and do you think it's important that the other eight do that? Meaning that when you guys walk out of the room this time, one of the criticisms in the last couple go rounds is that you get to a majority. You know, Scalise yeah. got to the majority and, and Jordan, as I mentioned, and then you go to the floor and you come up short. So do you think it's important that you stay in the room until you come up with 217? I do, right? I, I entirely do. So, um, you know, you hear people saying, yeah, give them enough food. I, I, don't even give us food. Just leave us in that room until <laughs> we get 217. <laughs> How about drink? You gonna let water come in maybe? If it's up to me, no, no water either. No water either. It's interesting. There are There's a term that's been getting thrown around a lot in the last, I don't know, 72 hours, not that it hasn't been, but, but people keep calling people rhinos, Republican in name only. Now, when mm -hmm. I started in politics, that meant somebody who ran as a Republican, but voted as a liberal, voted as a Democrat. So yeah. they, they weren't committed to the tenets of the Republican party, fiscal responsibility, right. smaller government, lower taxes. Now it means anybody, it seems to me that it's anybody who doesn't vote for what certain people want, right? And, and right. Where do you, what do you think about sort of some of the tactics and the name calling that's been going on? I think it's very damaging to us. Uh, it, you know, my constituents hear these things about certain members and they say to me, we got to get rid of these rhinos. And, uh, and, and meanwhile, they got a voting record. They're with us 96.5% of the time. And I explain sometimes, well, 
if you want to get rid of someone in a plus one Democrat seat or a seat that Joe Biden won by 8%, it will be taken over by, by a Democrat that votes against us 100% of the time. So, yeah, but, but I think the difference, the difference to me is you're actually talking about substance and voting and policy. What I'm talking about is I'm looking at some of these people who've, who've had this label attached to them, and I say yeah. they're voting 99% of the time. This isn't people in swing districts. These okay. are people who are rock-solid conservatives, but because they might not have backed Jim Jordan, they're being yeah. called a rhino. It's wrong. I mean, it's just it's, it's, it's misinformation. It's mislabeling. It's a mischaracterization. And the idea that we are uh, you know, crit criticizing destructively criticizing, not constructively criticizing our own party. We, we know who our, who our opponents are, our adversaries are. The ones who you just described on the left side of the aisle that, are, that think excessive spending is a wonderful thing. As a matter of fact, that's their only growth initiative. That is leaving the borders open. All these so-called rhinos want lower taxes, want lower spending, want uh, domestic energy uh, uh, to, to be increased, want a closed border. And, and, you know, and we have such a catastrophe again in the Biden, Biden White House uh, related to um, global events, not just the, the domestic side. You know, I posed this to some, some uh, folks uh, on an earlier show. Name one thing that you could say is, 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 is improved. Uh, any policy initiative, anything from our economy to our national security to our, our, our uh, public safety, since Joe Biden's gotten into office. Yeah. They were stumped. And you know what? They were a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one of the things, love him or hate him, uh, that Kevin McCarthy did really well was raise a ton of money to help get, grow a majority on the Republican side in the House. You brought this up in your letter to your colleagues. Number three is fundraising. Promote inclusivity by involving more members in fundraising opportunity. If the speaker is fundraising in another member's district, that member could be included. I don't think that's the priority with all due respect. I think the priority is you got to be raising the money, whether or not you're in that member's district or not. How do you plan to fill that hole that McCarthy uh, is going to clearly leave? Well, um, first of all, I'd, I'd ask for his assistance uh, initially uh, uh, for contacts, for uh, his skill and, and how he does it, because you need it costs to message, it costs to get our word out. Uh, so so it's a very important part of it. And some people dissuaded me. They said, you know, you shouldn't put that in there. No, it's a, a very important part right. of being speaker. Right. So so a learn, 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 learn the trait, learn the skill as well as possible. Dedicate all your time outside of member services and pop, you know, our time here. But outside of that, forget about any hobbies. That this is what you're going to be doing on on weekends uh, and 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 in the evenings. Uh, but secondly, my point was that I wanted to be more inclusionary. I want rather than me as speaker coming back saying, "Hey, I got ten million dollars for our conference." I want to say, these guys were with me. They've got the relationships. They're going to continue to enhance that relationship. It was from their state. And again, you know, Kevin did a remarkable job, but I just think this builds more, more team loyalty uh, than, than the speaker being the one delivering the great news. I want the members to deliver such good news. So let me ask you just a, a personal question. You've seen the movie. The first movie was, was, John Boehner. 
he stuck around for a while and people grew tired of him in the conference, threw him aside. Then Paul Ryan comes in, he gets thrown aside. Kevin McCarthy comes in, gets thrown aside. Why do you want this job? And what does your family say about it? I don't, you know what? I'm not even sure if I necessarily want it. I, I will, I will do it if the conference says, Hey, you know what? Let's, let's give Muser a shot here. <laughs> let's give him, let's give him the conference. We like what he's saying. He's got a proven track record. Um, I, he seems like he, he should be trustworthy, but you got to earn that trust every single day, every day. And it comes through actions, not, not words. Uh, it comes from making the speaker's house, this resource center, as I mentioned, it comes from a lot of work. I mean, Kevin McCarthy worked his, his tail off. What, what does my wife say? Um, well, my kids are grown, so they think it's kind of exciting. Okay. Uh, but my wife has no idea what we're about to get into. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought, because I'll tell you, there's a couple of times when I've flown, thrown ideas by my wife and she's like, no, not again. We're not doing that. Uh, uh, so, exactly. I, you know, but I, I do. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you've thrown your hat into the ring. We do need leadership at this point. And um, and I think that. Uh, I mean, I, I as, a, as a lifelong Republican and someone who's worked in the House Republican Conference, I think we need to get our act together and move forward. There's issues, and I think we need to sort of address the spending and all the other issues there. And, and I just, you know, um, so before we leave, what what is the last thing? I mean, we're going to be air, we're airing right as this meeting's taking place. What do you want people out there to know to call their member of Congress and say, vote Muser for Speaker? Well. I would say you can count on me. I'm not in the business of letting people down. I'm going to do what I say. I'm a very hardworking guy. Um, there'll be a lot of transparency. And when I say members first, I really mean American people first, because we're a republic. And they're here representing their constituencies. And that's why there has to be, whether you like them or not, mutual respect, great respect for every member. Because by respecting them, you're respecting their constituency. And I never forget it. I never forget why we're here. I never forget my oath of office. Um, I'm a conservative. We're going to lay out plans. And frankly, like Donald Trump, I think I have a good ability to execute plans with a sense of urgency. So we're going right. to correct as much as we can. Congressman Dan Muser, good luck tonight. Uh, thank you for joining us. I know it's a busy day for you. Thanks, Sean. You're the best, man. Appreciate that. All right. I enjoyed that conversation with Muser. It'll be interesting to see how he does tonight, whether or not he can win his colleagues over. Uh, but also going forward, how this thing plays out. Tom Emmer is right now considered the front runner in this race. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of pushback from MAGA world, from Trump world, about some comments that he may or may not have made, some things that they're accusing him of doing or not doing. He's got some enemies. We're going to see, is this another situation where he gets the majority but can't get to 217, or does somebody else emerge? Dan Muser made a pretty compelling case. Let's see how the rest of them do tonight. But before we get to that, Mike Davis of the Article 3 Project is going to tell us about where we stand with President Trump's indictments, with the Biden administration's, what he calls election interference, and where everything heads going, for, going as we, we move forward into these cases and to election season. So without further ado... Mike Davis. Mike, thanks for taking time to join us today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You bet. So you recently tweeted out that Biden is involved in election interference, trying to prevent Trump from getting back in office. Explain what you mean by that. Well, uh, President Biden had 
Jonathan Sue, his deputy White House counsel, uh, waive President Trump's uh, claim of executive privilege, something that every president has had going back 250 years to George Washington to unleash the unprecedented, unnecessary, and unlawful home raid on President Trump to go get presidential records that President Trump was allowed to have under the Presidential Records Act. And so you believe that this is his way of making sure that he doesn't get on the ballot? Because it's interesting. Initially, when I saw that, I started to think 14th Amendment. Yeah, I mean, that's that's also part of their strategy. Look, they they impeached President Trump twice for nonsense. They've indicted him four times for nine crimes. And you're seeing that this Democrat lawfare and election interference is actually backfiring on them. President Trump is becoming more popular. There are a lot of people who say that they may not necessarily like President Trump's rhetoric, but they're sure as hell not going to let Democrat prosecutors and Democrat judges and Democrat juries and Democrat hellholes like D.C., New York, and Atlanta pick our next president. So the, the Democrats' next play is they're trying to use Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, pa- uh, passed after the Civil War, to disqualify Confederate sympathizers uh, from uh, t- taking federal office. That you saw after the Civil War, these Confederate sy- sympathizers were winning the House seats in the House of Representatives and undermining the post-Civil War Reconstruction efforts. And so they passed the four, uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the post-Civil War Amendments, and Section 3 of the 14th Amendment disqualifies people who took up arms against the United States, insurrection or rebellion. So, and that's I, what they're trying to use against President Trump. Do you think, like, just this weekend, there were several more polls that came out that showed President Trump's lead over President Biden growing. And we've now seen that both in the swing states and nationally. Do you think, oh, let me ask it this way. How do you see the 14th Amendment play by the Democrats going down? Is it that they start in one state and then use that precedent? Is it that that they just ask for the Supreme Court? I mean, how do you as a lawyer, if you were on their side and said, here's how we could effectively try to implement this, how would you go about it? Well, they're doing it right now in Colorado. They're trying to get President Trump disqualified in Colorado, which has become a blue state. And so they can set a precedent where the secretary of state or some state judge can just say, yeah, President Trump committed insurrection or rebellion. So therefore, we're going to disqualify him from the ballot. And then they're going to use that precedent in swing states. Here's the problem, that there is already a case on point from 1869 that uh, uh, Samuel Chase, the chief justice, sat on this case. And that the, the, the ruling is very clear. If you want to disqualify under the 14th Amendment, Congress has to pass a statute related to insurrection or rebellion. You have to bring charges under that federal statute. You have to get a unanimous jury to uh, find him guilty, a judge to convict, and it has to be upheld on appeal. And Congress has passed that statute. It's been on the books for many, many, many decades. And if uh, the Biden administration wants to disqualify President Trump, they need to charge him under that statute, but they know they don't have evidence to charge him under that statute. So now they're going to have their Democrat and Trump deranged Republican officials around the country try to do this uh, through fiat, whether it's the Secretary of State's fiat or some judicial fiat from, from some state judge. The Supreme Court's ultimately going to rule for Trump, but this is going to create chaos in our election system. So that I'm glad you brought it up that way because I remember when that first 
indictment came down against President Trump, the indictment in New York by Alvin Bragg, the DA there. And I asked lawyers, I said, I don't understand this. It seems as though the statute of limitation has expired. It seems like this was a misdemeanor made into a... And, and they said, yes, but in the era of Trump, judges don't care anymore about what the law and precedent would be. Is there a concern that despite everything that you just laid out, that some judge in Colorado says, ah, it's Trump, screw it. I'm just going to kick him off the ballot. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like this judge is heading down this path because this judge in Colorado has denied like three or four motions to dismiss uh, based upon the, the, the proper interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And look, the Supreme Court, the, the appellate courts in Colorado, the Supreme Court in Colorado, it's it's all Democrat dominated now. So the Supreme Court is going to have to step up. That means that the Supreme Court, they have discretionary review. They don't have to take these cases. So these Republican appointed Supreme Court justices are going to have to put on their big boy pants and show a little bit of courage here with their lifetime appointments and their pay protection. They may actually have to do their jobs and they may have to offend the Washington Post and the New York Times. But at the end of the day, the law is very clear. Yeah. I mean, again, I look at this as just from a layperson standpoint, and I, I don't understand. The, one last thing on this point, because I want to, is in the in the Constitution, it talks about all these federal officials. It doesn't actually mention the president. Yeah, I mean, that's it, that, that's another very good point, because is, is the president of the United States an officer of the United States? That uh, needs to be resolved by the Supreme Court as well. But even if President Trump uh, was an officer of the United States as the president of the United States. The 14th Amendment is very clear. Section three is very clear. Section five, Section five is very clear. The 14th Amendment is not self-executing. Under Section five, Congress has to pass legislation to give the 14th Amendment effect. And you can't have some bozo secretary of state uh, in some blue state or some bozo judge in some blue state just decree that President Trump committed insurrection or rebellion and can't be on the ballots. Right. Um, I want to switch gears and talk about these indictments that are coming down. Last week, uh, in this Fulton County, Georgia case, you saw um, two individuals that had been indicted, Sidney Powell and then this uh, Chesboro guy, uh, a lawyer, also plead guilty. Explain why you think they pled guilty and how big of a deal or not that is. I think that they pled, and I haven't talked to either one of them, but I think they pled guilty because they understood if they didn't plead guilty to these misdemeanors uh, with the promise of no jail time, their lives would be destroyed by this right. Fulton County DA, this Fannie Willis, this deranged DA, and this Fulton County uh, Democrat, overwhelmingly Democrat jury pool. So I think that they just said, you know what, we're going to plead guilty to these nonsensical misdemeanors. And even though they're not guilty, they're going to plead guilty just to make this go away. I think it shows that Fannie Willis's uh, RICO conspiracy case against President Trump and all the co-defendants is utter garbage. It's utter nonsense. Sidney Powell so, is supposedly- Should he worry the, though? The, the should, Trump, should, should Trump be worried about that? I, the thing that I find interesting, again, going back to my non-lawyer world here is both of the people who pled guilty to these misdemeanors were his lawyers. And so how much can they actually say because of attorney client privilege? Well, you didn't under, you, you don't remember, Sean, there's the Trump derangement exception to attorney client <laughs> privilege. There's the Trump oh, derangement yeah. exception to every constitutional provision, every statute, uh, you know, the rule of law uh, applies to everyone except for Trump. 
But but so if you're Trump's team and you're sitting back watching these two people plead guilty and assuming, I agree with you, I think they jammed them and said, listen, you get convicted of one felony, you're going to jail. Uh, so, you know, save yourself jail time, plead to these silly misdemeanors and a couple thousand dollars in fines. I get that. There's, you know, when you're staring down the barrel of jail time, but should President Trump worry about what they may or may not say? I, I don't think so, because no matter what they say about President Trump, President Trump could not have committed a crime, period, full stop. It is not a crime to object to a presidential election. It's specifically allowed by the Electoral Count Act of 1887. If it were a crime to object to a presidential election, Democrats would be in prison for objecting to Republican wins in 1968, 2000, 2004, and 2016. It's also not a crime to twist arms politically. That's allowed by the First Amendment. And President Trump has been filing motions to dismiss on two key grounds. What he did as the President of the United States, including at the outer bounds of what, what he did as the President of the United States, is covered by presidential immunity, right? So that's number one. Uh, and alternatively, what he did as a private citizen is protected by the First Amendment. So th th this judge down in Georgia may not agree. This could be some Trump-deranged Republican judge but at the end of the day, both with the uh, both with Jack Smith's indictment in D.C. for January 6th, along with Fannie Willis's indictment down in Fulton County, Georgia, for January 6th, they're both going to be dismissed by the Supreme Court at the end of the day under presidential immunity or the First Amendment. So, so let me just ask you this last question. Timeline wise, I agree with your assessment that, that these guys are out to get them both in D.C., and in Georgia in particular. So let's say he gets convicted and he appeals. Does that timeline lend itself that he could have this resolved by the time he becomes president again? Or would this happen while he was president? Well, it, so when you file a motion to dismiss under presidential immunity, that is immediately appealable to the appellate courts and the Supreme Court of the Supreme Court decides to, again, put on its big boy pants and uh, decide this case. Uh, the, the First Amendment issue doesn't have to stop the case. Presidential immunity stops these cases in their tracks until mm -hmm. they're resolved by the appellate court. So I can see these, uh, you know, these trial court judges denying, like uh, the the Tanya Shutkin is the Obama appointed D.C. judge who's looking at Jack Smith's case. There's a there's a uh, Jack Kemp appointed uh, judge down in, or uh, excuse me, Brian Kemp appointed judge down in Fulton County. So who knows how he's going to rule. But at the end of the day, the Supreme Court will ultimately have to take these cases because these cases are so much bigger than Donald Trump. This is about presidential powers and whether the president could be indicted in federal court or a state court based upon exercising his his presidential powers, including the outer perimeter of his presidential powers. It, they're, they're alleging that President Trump ordered his vice president to not certify the election. Well, you can't do that as a private citizen. That's obviously in his presidential powers. <laughs> well, as you said, I hope the Supreme Court orders several pairs of big boy pants. They will need a lot of them uh, based on the number of cases that are headed their way. Mike Davis, thank you for being here. I appreciate all the work that you and everyone at Article 3 does. And, and again, uh, go visit Mike and his team there because he put out this on Twitter. It's largely financed by him. And so anything that you guys can do to, to help his effort is obviously appreciated. Mike, thank you. Thank you very much. All right. What a great show. I'm glad we kicked off Monday the way we did. But listen, the rest of the week is going to be nuts. 
crazy. I mean, we've got the speakers race. We've got probably more indictments coming. Brand new polling, as I mentioned, uh, showing President Trump leading right now uh, continues to come out. This means good news for President Trump. But I also think that this is where Mike Davis was touching on. I would be very concerned about what the Biden administration tries to do to stop the Democrats, the left, know that he's on the ascent and the Biden administration's policies aren't working and he's getting older. So thank you for your support. Continue to subscribe, share uh, this show with others. I appreciate everyone's support and what they're doing. Look forward to seeing you back here tomorrow to break it all down on the Sean Spicer Show.